Good morning, family of God. I'm so excited to dig into this text of scripture with you. But before I do that, can I share you an encouraging update from last week? So uh, several weeks ago, we shared with you as a church family some opportunities that we had to um, minister to our community and to uh, minister to some of the youth from our church this summer and said that we were behind on finances and we asked if some of you would pray about giving and you gave. I mean, I was really blown away by your generosity, how much you gave to support those things. Can we praise God for that again? Let's praise God for that. And one of the things that that allowed us to do was last week take a dozen youth from our church, teenagers from our church down to Texas and take them on a mission trip. And we were down uh, working with Mission Arlington, a wonderful ministry, um, doing some great work down there. And you would have been so encouraged and proud if you could see our youth. Youth, some of which are, are your children who have grown up in this church. A lot of the youth that we took are people who came to know Christ as children in the apartment outreaches we do in our South OKC community. And now they're growing to be young ag- adults who are really beginning to have a deep personal relationship with God. And your youth, our youth from the church, were sharing the gospel boldly. They were teaching the Bible to children. They were sharing their testimony to large groups. Some of our youth were sitting down teaching Bible stories and lessons to people who were older than them. They did awesome. Can we encourage the youth now and give thanks for them? It was also really fun. Sometimes when you are sharing the gospel with people, you're just scattering a lot of seed And you never know what's going to come of it. But we got to have a fun week that we were in a place where God had already really been preparing a lot of hearts. We got to have a lot of deep spiritual conversations. And at least 11 people while we were down there made first time professions of faith in Jesus. So it was just awesome. So let's praise God for all of that. Isn't God good? So I'm just thankful for what God is doing in our midst. And I'm excited to hear from him today. Do you want to hear from the Lord today? Let's bow our heads. I want to just take a moment now to be still and be quiet. In Psalm 46, God says, be still and know that I am God. Whatever is going on in your life right now, good or bad, God loves you. God is here and he wants to speak to you today. So let's just take a quiet to be a moment to be quiet. I would encourage you to pray that God will give you an ear to hear his word. And then I'm going to say a prayer for us before we dig in. Our Father in heaven, we praise you because you are holy. And as we read from Revelation chapter 7 earlier, we praise you that you have called people to yourself on every continent. That right now, this morning, thousands of different languages are singing your praise. Hundreds of millions of people. We just are in awe of how good you are and we worship you. We thank you that you are with us, loving us in the pleasant times of life and in the painful times of life, that you're with us in the noise and you're with us in the quiet. And this morning, we want to surrender to you and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Would you forgive our sins? Would you come near us to be our teacher and our guide? Would you help me to say everything you want me to say and nothing that you don't? 
Would you give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to trust and obey your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our story today from Luke 8 ends with a question. If you look at verse 25. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? That who question is important. Everybody say who. Sometimes in church, we give a lot of time to thinking about some very valid how questions. I've got a lot of how-to questions about life, don't you? If you're a parent, you know that often it's a struggle to figure out how am I supposed to love these kids? I know I'm supposed to love them, but how should I teach them? How should I respond to what's going on in their lives right now? How? If you are single or married, which is everybody, one of those two, then You've got questions. How do I honor the Lord by the way that I steward my singleness? How do I honor the Lord by the way I love my spouse? Practically, day to day, nuts and bolts. How do we deal with conflict? How do we do communication? Those kinds of things. Hopefully you're thinking about how do I honor Jesus with the way I conduct myself at work? How do I honor God with my job? How do I honor the Lord with my finances? How do I think like a Christian in the way I relate to my friends? How do I share the gospel? How can I learn how to have a lifestyle of pray? How, how, how? Those questions important, church? Yes, they are. We need to think about all those practical how questions. But I think our text today is, among other things, a reminder that the who questions are even more important. Especially these ones. Who is God? Who are you? Who am I? And both of those questions lead us to this question. Who is Jesus? That's what they're asking at the end of our text. Who is Jesus? One of my seminary professors was a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser, and he wrote the statement. Jesus is the truth about God, the truth about humanity and the truth about God's relationship to humanity. So if you want to know who God is. Who you are and how you can be rightly related to God. It's all about Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Who then is this man, Jesus, that we read about in this story, that he commands even winds and water? Because here's the thing. If we have a lot of how to practical knowledge for life, but we don't know the living Lord Jesus Christ, all of our how to knowledge won't really work. On the flip side, we do need some practical wisdom, but if we've really got nailed down rightly in our hearts, the the correct answer to who is Jesus, that's like 80% of the battle for all those how-to questions. When I know who Jesus is, now I've got a firm foundation to start thinking about how do I do parenting or how do I manage my finances or all those other things. It's all about Jesus and it's all about who he is. And this text gets us to this who question Not by telling us a lot of abstract theology. There are Bible passages that do this. But this text tells us a story about an event that happened. This is not a parable. This is not a fable. This is a real historical event. The disciples witnessed it. And they couldn't stop thinking about it and telling this story until the end of their lives. And then they wrote it down in the scriptures. In these gospel accounts. And I want you to just use your imagination for a moment. Imagine what it would be like to be there, okay? 
The setting is this. Jesus has spent the whole day ministering to people. He's been teaching. He's been healing. It's the end of the day. He and his disciples are very exhausted. He says in verse 22, let's get in a boat and go to the other side. By the way, in the history of Christian art, this this scene has been depicted many times, most famously by Rembrandt. It's a beautiful painting if you want to look it up later. Uh, But in most of these depictions, it's the 12 apostles who are with Jesus. But it just says Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And Luke 8 began by telling us Jesus had a much larger group of disciples, including some women, Joanna and and uh, Mary Magdalene and others who are mentioned. So it's very possible that some of that larger group is in the boat, including some of those women who followed with Jesus. They all get in the boat and they're going out on the Sea of Galilee, which is really a great big lake. And uh, depending on which route they took, they were uh, going across the sea, perhaps seven or about nine miles. And the sea is below sea level. It's got a low elevation and has a very unique topography such that it was common on the Sea of Galilee for very violent storms to flare up very quickly. But they get on the boat. They're sailing. They're going across the sea. And Jesus, exhausted from the day's ministry, falls into sleep. He falls asleep. And apparently it was a very deep sleep because, as we read in the story... Even when there's a raging storm, he stays asleep. You've got to be really tired to stay asleep when you're on a boat and there's a raging storm. And he's sleeping and he's sleeping and the rain starts and the wind starts. The storm flares up and eventually gets intense enough that the disciples are scared for their lives. They're terrified. And remember, several of these Disciples were fishermen who grow, grew up on the Sea of Galilee. So they're used to this sea. They're used to boats. They're used to the big storms that flare up on this sea. They're veterans. They're not going to be scared for their lives unless their lives are really in danger. So you can picture it. You can imagine it. But big high waves, strong winds, it's scary. Finally, in their fear and Confusion and exhaustion, they wake up Jesus and notice it says he rebukes the wind and the waves. It doesn't say he prayed. I'm going to come back to this in a second. He stands up and he talks to the wind and the waves. If you compare the way this story is told in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter four, I believe it's verse thirty nine. You can find out. The words that he said, Jesus stands up, he looks out at the storm and he says, peace, be still. Can you visualize that in your mind? Everybody say peace. Jesus says, peace, be still. And immediately. The wind stops. The waves stop. It's quiet. And he turns to the disciples. Imagine you're one of those disciples, one of the men and women gathered in this boat. And he looks at them and he says to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? It's a very vivid story. Can you imagine a church? Can you put yourself in that boat? The disciples would remember this. They would think about it. I'm sure they talked to each other about it. You remember that time when there was a big storm and we were all freaking out? They reflected on what exact words did Jesus say? 
They thought about the events and they thought about the implications of these events for our who question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? As we wrestle with that question, I want to especially highlight two little phrases. First one is in verse 23. Look with me at verse 23. It says, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Just want to think about that for a second. Not because I want to preach a sermon on the spirituality of naps, although that's a good sermon too, okay? Sometimes we imitate Jesus by getting up really early to pray or staying up late to pray. Sometimes we imitate Jesus by going to sleep and letting everybody else do the work. A nap can be a holy thing, right? But I want to think about this because we're thinking about the question, who is Jesus? And verse 23 says, as they sailed, he fell asleep. That's significant. I want you to think about it. And it's significant, especially when you compare it to the second half of verse 24, which says this. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. Now, those two things said about the same person. Usually don't make sense. Let me explain what I mean. Says he fell. He fell asleep. That's very normal. Humans do that all the time, right? Do you know who doesn't fall asleep? According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, God doesn't fall asleep. Let me read you a few verses. Isaiah 40, some of you know, Isaiah 40, starting verse 28, says this. Have you not heard, known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So church, this is simple. Does God get tired? No. And it goes on to contrast that with human beings. Human beings get tired. Verse 29 says, he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. He says, even youths get tired. Young, strong people get tired. Amen, church? Anybody tired at church this morning? We can be honest here. Jesus fell asleep in the boat. We can fall asleep at church and probably not get rebuked. So we all get tired. But Isaiah 40, 28 says God doesn't get tired. Or you can think about Psalm 121, 4. I think about this one when I'm struggling to go to sleep at night. Some of you may struggle with the occasional insomnia. Sometimes my mind is just racing and I'm thinking about all the people who need to be taken care of and all the tasks that need to be done. You know what I'm talking about, church? And I, I like to think about Psalm 121 that I can relax and rest because I know God's going to stay up taking care of everybody. Psalm 121, 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Okay? God stays up all night taking care of people so we can rest. What I'm trying to say is Scripture emphasizes the point that human beings, in contrast to God, human beings sleep. They get tired. Jesus was tired. He went to sleep. He's a human being. That's the point. But now, look at verse 25. Sorry, verse 24. It says, And he awoke... And rebuke the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Do human beings do that? They do not. And once again, we don't just have to tap our own life experience. The Bible, not just once, but repeatedly emphasizes one of the things that makes God different than humans is that God can command the weather. And specifically, there's a lot of Bible passages that Jesus knew and his disciples knew about God calming the raging seas. Only God can do it. Human beings cannot do it. 
What I'm trying to say is Jesus orchestrated this moment to teach the disciples something and to teach us something. He knew what he was doing when he laid down to go to sleep in that boat. He knew what he was doing when he took him across the sea. He knew about the storm that was coming. Because he wanted them to think about some passages like the ones I'm about to read to you. Here's one, Psalm chapter 89. If you want to flip with your, in your Bible with me, you can, but I'm going to go faster. You feel, feel free just to listen or jot down the reference and look it up later. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9 say this. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? That's a rhetorical question. Y'all can tell me the answer. Who is as mighty as God? Nobody. He's the Lord of hosts. That means he commands armies of spiritual beings. Angels go wherever he tells them. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The psalmist is making a contrast. Nobody is strong like God because nobody else can command the raging waves to stop and they stop. It's not just one verse. There's a bunch of passages like this. Check out this one. Psalm 66. I'm sorry, 65. Beginning of verse 5 says this. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. What a phrase. God is the God of our salvation. He has the power to save us from anything that could harm us. And he loves us. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the furthest seas. And then down in verse 7, it describes his power like this. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Or we could go to Psalm 107. Verse 28, it's describing people who were out in boats and a storm came and they were terrified and they called out to God for help. The Lord God of Israel. And it says in verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And the word Lord here is Yahweh, the special name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And it says, then they called to Yahweh, to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The point of the text is if you want to get saved from the raging waves, you better call out to the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, because there's nobody else who can command them. Or one more. I'm not going to give you all the verses. I had a long list in my study this week. Okay, here's one more. Psalm 93 verses three through four say this. The floods have lifted up. Oh, oh Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. What I'm trying to help you see is that the Bible frequently and repeatedly talks about calming the raging seas as something that only the Lord God can do. Jesus knows that when he sets up this moment to teach his disciples. So how do we put these two things together? Verse 23, he sleeps, but that's a human thing, not a God thing. Verse 24, he stands up and commands the waves and the storm and they obey him. That's a God thing. That's not a human thing. The disciples, no wonder they were afraid and no wonder they were puzzled. They never seen or thought about anything like this. By the way, Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles. The Gospel of Luke has told us about many of those miracles, miracles of healing Miracles of casting out demons. 
Miracles of even raising the dead. These are miracles that God had sometimes done through other people, other prophets, other teachers. Never as many or as much or as dramatic as Jesus, but he had done them. And these were miracles that the prophets of Israel predicted the Messiah would do. But there's not a word in the Old Testament about the Messiah calming the sea, commanding the waves, calming storms. What the Old Testament says over and over is that only the Lord God of Israel, creator of heaven and earth, ruler of the nations, can command the sea and can command the weather. Only the Lord God can do it. So this thing that he shows them in private, just his disciples, different than what he's doing in public, is not just showing them that he's the Messiah. It's showing them something more. The Messiah is more than they thought he was, in other words. And he doesn't stand up and say, oh, father, please calm the storm. Nor does he stand up. If, if you and I were about to die in a boat and we got filled with the Holy Ghost more than we ever be, have been filled before, we might say something like, in the name of Jesus, be still. And we may or may not get a miracle, but we might say it, right? But we would be appealing to a name other than our own, because we know if I say, in the name of John Mark, be still, there's definitely no miracle in that case, right? Not going to happen. We're appealing to somebody else's authority. Jesus doesn't do that. He stands and in his own authority, not appealing to any other, he says, peace, be still. He rebukes the wind and the waves because they're subject to his authority. That's the point. When we put the two phrases together, Jesus slept, Jesus rebuked the waves and they obeyed him. What we find is that Jesus is the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, God, our savior. And we find that he's a human being. Weak as we are, vulnerable as we are, exhaustible as we are, needing sleep just like us. This is the mystery of the incarnation. It's what John 1:14 is talking about. John 1, 1 said about Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. What it's saying is that Jesus is God, and Jesus is human being. What it's saying is the Lord God, Creator of heaven and earth, who rules over angels, who rules over human beings, who rules over all creation, came among us and clothed Himself with our weakness, our mortality, our vulnerability. Everybody say, Incarnation. All of Christianity doesn't make sense unless this is true. The disciples didn't have categories to wrap their mind around it, so he showed it to them in a way they could not forget. They're never going to forget this night. The smell of the salt water, the fear of dying, the look of Jesus peacefully sleeping on the boat, so exhausted, the sound of his voice when he says, peace be still, and the utter calm afterwards. They're not going to forget that moment. And what they're going to learn over time is that the almighty, infinite, holy one has taken unto himself a human nature, body and rational soul for us and for our salvation. Why would God do that? Why would the creator who commands the seas take unto himself a human nature so that when we see this man, Jesus, we're seeing the God man fully human and fully God 
begotten of his father eternally before all ages, conceived of the Holy Spirit and begotten in the womb of Mary 2000 years ago in history and in time, fully God and fully human. Why? Why? Now we're asking a why question. In this story, the answer is clear. To save his disciples from death. That's why he's there. I got to tell you, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit in the sermon, but as I read over this text over and over this week, I, I got surprised by how moved I felt by the opening phrase. One day he got into a boat with his disciples. He got into a boat with his disciples. Anybody feel like you're on a boat adrift at sea with a big raging storm? What is the incarnation? It's God getting into a boat with his disciples. He got in the boat to save his disciples from death. But the rest of Luke's Gospels makes it clear it's not just to save them from drowning on this night. He came to save us from death itself. He came to save us from the power of the devil. He came to save us from our own sin. You see, the place where the vulnerability and the weakness and the reality of Jesus' humanity is most fully displayed is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where on the cross, he bears in himself all of human sin and all of its consequences so that we don't have to bear it. And the moment where his divine power is most clearly revealed is his resurrection. Peter would later say the cords of death could not hold him. He broke out of it. He was too strong because he's the God man. He's the son of God, fully human and fully divine. And he came because only as human can he enter into our brokenness and bear our sin and its consequences. And only as God can he save it, save us from it. Isn't Jesus awesome, church family? He's so good. God, the invulnerable, became vulnerable for us. God... The Almighty became weak for us. God, the inexhaustible, became weak and tired for us. God, the immortal source of eternal life, took on a human nature to die for us in our salvation. As we think about that reality and what effect it should have on our lives, we can take note of two different kinds of fear. That the disciples display in this passage. Two kinds of fear. Look with me at verse 24 again. But this time the beginning of the verse. And it says, And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. At the beginning of verse 24, they're scared. They're shaking Jesus and waking Jesus because they're scared. And what they're scared of is dying. They're terrified of dying. We live in a culture that really tries to suppress the knowledge that we're all going to die. We sanitize death very literally. If we lived in other parts of the world or lived a couple hundred years ago, we would see death. We would see dead bodies all the time. Not so in our culture. We don't like to think about our death. But we're all going to die. And for many of us, that's a terrifying thought, especially because the knowledge that we try to suppress about our death in every human culture is linked with this other knowledge we try to suppress about ourselves, which is our guilt. 
we all know that there's good and evil in the world. And we all know that though we would like to think of ourselves as being on team good, there's evil in us, too. And we have participated in the evil and brokenness of the world. We all have this intuition that we're accountable to something outside of ourselves. We try to suppress the knowledge of our guilt. We have very expensive strategies for doing that through drugs or therapies or whatever to suppress the knowledge of our guilt as if the knowledge of our guilt was the problem. You know, what's the problem, the sin. And sin makes death scary because death carries with it. Some awareness that we're about to cross over to a new threshold. I mean, some people think we're going into non-being. We'll just stop to exist. But most of us have an intuition that that's not the case. And that we're going to be accountable to something powerful and good and in charge. So human beings in general are terrified of death. And every human culture has rituals and things to try and help us deal with us. In our culture, we just try to hide from the fact that we're going to die. They're terrified of death in verse 24. But then, look just a few verses later, a few, a few phrases later, verse 25, the middle of it, they've got a totally different kind of fear. They're not scared of dying in the storm anymore. It says, and they were afraid and they marveled. What kind of fear is this? They're not scared of death now. The nature of their fear is revealed by the question we've been considering. Who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. The fear that they're displaying right here is trembling awe in the presence of Jesus. They know this man. They've been spending a lot of time with him. He's their friend. He calls himself their friend. They have a relationship with him. They know them him as human, but they're beginning to wrap their minds around. He just did something that the scriptures say only the Lord God of Israel can do. And there's a sense of awe that'll kind of make you have goosebumps, right? It'll make the hair stand up on your neck. There's a sense of trembling. What this is what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Everybody say the fear of the Lord. Proverbs one says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some of you know, first John chapter four tells us that those who fear have not been made perfect in love because fear has to do with punishment. But what first John four is not is saying is not that we shouldn't know the fear of the Lord. It's saying that we shouldn't have the servile fear of punishment when we've been perfected by the love of God. But there's this other kind of fear, what theologians call filial fear. It's not the fear of a slave who doesn't is scared of being Beaten by his master, it's the awe before the Holy One whom we love and cherish and don't want anything to interrupt our relationship with him. And the disciples are in awe of Jesus. Friends, we need to be more in awe of Jesus. I want you to think about two realities right now. One of them is that this is another historical fact. It's one that hasn't happened yet. I only know it because the Bible says it's going to happen. Here's a historical fact. Every knee, including mine and yours, will one day bow before Jesus and confess that he is Lord. He's going to be revealed in glory. Not in the vulnerability and weakness of when he was sleeping, but more like 
what was happening when he commanded the wind and the waves, except for times a million. He's going to be revealed in glory and the haters will no longer hate and the deniers will no longer deny. Everybody's going to confess the truth of Jesus. That he's Lord, he's going to set everything right. Judging all evil and. Restoring to himself those who have trusted in him and healing the wounds of the world. Here's another fact. He's here with us right now. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Maybe we should just be still for a second and think about that fact. Jesus The one who commanded the wind and the waves in this story and who will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. He's here with us right now. That knowledge awakens a certain kind of fear and trembling. But this is a fear and trembling, not like the terror of death for those who do not know the grace of forgiveness. This is a trembling That is filled with joy and hope. We tremble. Because this man is Lord of creation. We have joy and hope because this man said he loves us. That's the gospel. We need more fear of the Lord. And I just want to say. Christianity is not the sort of thing that. Should make us think we should come to Jesus and see if he works for us. Will he help me figure out some things about my spiritual life? Will he give me meaning and purpose? That's really a trivial question. If he's not who he says he is, then why would you want to live based on some myth that gives you a sense of meaning in your life? But if he is who he says he is then it really doesn't matter if it works for you. Do you work for him? That's probably a better question. Have you trusted in him? Have you acknowledged him? When he reveals himself to us in all of his gentleness and all of his compassion and all of his love and all of his authority and all of his glory, really our only two options are to surrender to him in trust or to rebel against him. There is no trying him out. But if you put your trust in him, it changes everything about how life works. If you want to think about this. Here's, here's a suggestion. You can think about a kid's song and two questions. And this is we'll end after this a kid's song and two questions. Here's the kid's song. Some of you OGs who have been with us for a while will remember we used to teach all of our kids in the apartments a little song we haven't done in a while called Jesus in your boat. You remember this one? Anybody? Okay, only like three people put their hands up. We got to we got to bring this one back. Okay, I'm not going to do the whole thing right now because there's a lot of emotions and stuff. So I'm not going to do all that. But here's the words to the little song that we would sing with the kids. Very exciting, fun song. It just says over and over with Jesus in your boat. You could smile through the story. Thank you. Marissa is doing the motions. I won't call you up to demonstrate right now with Jesus in your boat. You can smile through the storm when you're sailing home with Jesus in your boat. You can smile through the storm, smile through the storm. Smile through the storm with Jesus in your boat. You can smile through the storm when you're sailing home. 
And I was just thinking about that phrase this week. Now, that that phrase, smile through the storm, that could be used in a very trite way, couldn't it? If it means just, you know, be happy, pretend like everything's okay. That's not what we want to say. But what the song is trying to say in a little way that can make sense to kids is this. If you know Jesus, if you've trusted the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again, then when real life storms come, I'm talking about real ones, grief, death, cancer, broken relationships, every form of trauma, losing your job, losing your house, marriage broken. When those storms come, they're still scary. We're still small and frail, but there is joy and there's hope and there's peace because we know the one who brings us through the storm. Changes how you view it. And then I was thinking about the last part of that song. You smile through the storm when you're sailing home. This song was deeper than I thought about it when we used to do all the motions with the kids, guys. When you're sailing home. See, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And if you read the end of the book in Revelation 21 and 22, and it describes the heavenly Jerusalem and the people of God entering into the presence of God to worship him in a renewed creation with resurrected bodies forever. One of the things it says is that there is no sea. And it doesn't mean I don't think that there's no beach vacations. That might also be true. I don't know about how that's going to work. But it's connecting us back to this long biblical theme that the sea in this ancient culture was a symbol of big powerful, chaotic forces that no human being can control and that threaten our lives. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? Chaos happens. That's big and powerful and beyond our control. And it can kill us and it can kill our loved ones. It can break our bodies very quickly. It can break our hearts. It can break our relationships. And it's saying when we're home, there's none, none of that. No more chaos. It's all gone. Everybody say peace. The shalom of God and his creation. Why? Because the Lord is going to say Jesus, the same one we read about the story, will say once and for all peace. Be still. And creation, which is unruly, groaning because of human and demonic evil, will flourish in the way that he's planned for it from the beginning. Do you want to see that? Then we need to think about these two questions. It, the text made it easy for me to end this sermon because the last verse has two great reflection questions. Jesus says, where is your faith? And the disciples say, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? I want to end by asking you to ponder those two questions. Let's take the disciples' questions first so we can end on what Jesus said. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water that they obey him? Who is Jesus? That's the question. Who is Jesus? And I would encourage you to think about this question both objectively and subjectively. Let me explain what that means. Who is Jesus and who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus and who is Jesus to you? Both of those questions. To think about it objectively, just who is Jesus? 
Um, here, here's a thought which is maybe really encouraging or maybe scary. I find it really encouraging. Whoever Jesus is, he is regardless of how we feel about him and how we think about him. Regardless of what we think and feel and hear, Jesus is who he is. Either he was a really wise Jewish teacher who was crucified by Rome and that was the end of it, or he is the Lord, the Son of God. One of those two things. We know he historically existed. We know he walked around Galilee. We know that thousands of people reported he did a lot of miracles and hundreds of people claimed to be witnesses to his resurrection. We got to explain all that historical data somehow, but whoever he is, he just is that regardless of how you feel. And if you're a Christian who's trusted him, isn't it nice that when your feelings fluctuate, the reality of who Jesus is does not fluctuate? He is who he is. Lord of creation all the time. But then there's the question, who is he to you? Who is he to you? Who is he to you? Which is really saying, have you aligned your mind and your heart and the, your life with the reality of who he is? And the thing is this, the Lord of creation wants you to know him as your savior, as your Lord, as your friend. And he says to them what he says to us. Here's where we finish. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Jesus wants us to trust him in all the little storms and big storms of life. The biggest storm is death. We've been talking about that one. To be a Christian is to be a person who says, I'm acknowledging Jesus as the son of God, the God man who died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And I'm trusting him with my life and with my death. Doesn't mean we're perfect people. Doesn't mean that we always live up to our best principles. What it means is that we trust Jesus. And if you're here and you have not trusted Jesus, the good news of the gospel is if you just trust him, you just surrender to him today and trust him, he will forgive your sins and he will give you victory over death. Will you trust him? Where is your faith? And for Christians who have trusted him, that's not just a one time thing. That's an ongoing everyday thing that we need to learn how to trust him today. Trust him with today's storm. So everybody turn to your neighbor. Welcome to our Spanish-speaking brethren who are rejoining us for this baptism. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you can trust him today. You can trust him today. He's going to take you home to the place where there's no chaos and peace. But in the meantime, you will go through storms. Church, if he lets you go through the storm, he has a reason. I'm not saying I know the reason. I'm not saying he's going to give you the reason. I'm not saying you would like the reason if you knew it. But I'm saying you can trust him to bring you through the storm. That's what we're saying. And if you trust him, the storm's still scary, but there's joy and there's hope in the storm. And that gives us peace and that gives us grace to love others like Christ has loved us. I want to invite you to stand as we get ready to sing a couple of songs. We're going to respond to this text of scripture by worshiping our Lord. For those of you who have kids in children's church, we'll invite you during this first song to go get your kids out of children's church and bring them in here so that both the children and the children's church workers can celebrate this baptism with us. But first, I just want to take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, because I know everybody in here has individual storms. 
going on in your own lives. Or you've been through a storm or there's a storm coming. And I don't know what those storms are, but God does. And I want to invite you now just to close your eyes, put your hands out in a posture of surrender to the Lord. And first thing I want to ask, invite you to do is just to picture, visualize. You're going through life, you're in a boat. Either you're in a storm right now or there's one ahead of you. But I want you to visualize Jesus in the boat with you. Just picture him. That's not just a fantasy that gives us peace. That's a using our spiritual imaginations to help us grasp the reality that Jesus said to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. And as you're fixing the eyes of your mind on Jesus, I just want to ask you to invite the Holy Spirit. What would you say to me in the midst of the storm? How do you want me to trust you? If you feel like you don't have any faith, you're not trusting him, just ask him to help you. Give me faith. Give me faith. He'll lead you through your temptation struggles. He'll lead you through your grief. If you trust in him, the hour of your death need hold no terror for you. If you trust in him, your, your death is the last storm before home in the presence of the Lord and reunion with those who have gone before us in Christ. For some of us in the room, God's been calling you to a step of obedience and it feels a little scary. Jesus will go through that storm with you too. He's with you. If you're feeling overwhelmed by something in your life today, I want to encourage you before you leave, come talk to me or one of our pastors or just someone you know here so that we can pray with you for that. But I want to pray for you now as we get ready to sing. Father, like these disciples in the story, we know who you are some, but there's so much about you that we haven't yet grasped. Open our eyes to see who Jesus is, to see who you are, Father. Open our hearts to trust you. Jesus, we just want to worship you now, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. You are our Savior. You are our King. You will reign forever over a peaceable kingdom of God. And Lord, we long for that day. In the meantime, Jesus, would you continually fill us, instruct us, teach us, forgive us, empower us to be ambassadors of the good news of your kingdom. Help us to trust you through the storms, Lord. In Jesus' name.